Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the CX Cast. Joined as always by my co-host Martin Gill. Hello. Welcome back from the plague that is COVID. How are you feeling? I'm all right. It's nice and hot here. By the time this goes out, it's going to be what it's late September, early October. But we've got a beautiful tail end of the summer here in the UK, so I'm enjoying it. Yeah, that's the way to look at it. Speaking of beautiful weather, well, San Francisco. How's the weather, Gina Walker? It's foggy, 50s, you know, it's typical San Francisco weather. We, we could have guessed that, right? <laughs> right, right. Just as you'd expect. And I do appreciate making me feel at home. This is the most English start we could possibly have to a podcast, just talking about the weather. So thank you. <laughs> there we go. Martin feels right at home. Well, I feel right at home with you, Gina, because Gina Walker, principal analyst on the CX team, has been on the show a few times. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Well, you're not just here, you're also over there, which is to say our sister podcast at Forrester, the What It Means podcast, is featuring none other than Gina to talk about responsible design, how trusted brands have greater growth potential, how they build that on responsible design, aligning it with companies' brand, purpose, values, and commitments, and just what a powerful tool responsible design can be. So... Head over to the What It Means podcast and learn all about the big picture of responsible design. Today, we're taking CX leaders and CX pros in depth for what it actually means to do your jobs, how it factors into your CX practice and strategy, and we're going to get into the, dare I say, useful details. Just briefly, Gina, what is responsible design? So Forrester defines responsible design as creating experiences that provide consistently positive outcomes and avoid harm for all stakeholders. So just breaking that down a little bit, it's an approach to designing that helps you do two different things. Number one, create positive outcomes for all stakeholders by applying decision-making tools in the design process that help make sure your end experiences adhere to important ethical principles, things like safety and privacy, fairness, transparency. We want to create experiences that are ethically positive, so to speak. And for some organizations, those principles are going to be very dependent on your values, the industry you're operating in. But then there's also like non-negotiable principles, right? Like every organization needs to create experiences that embody the ethical principles of privacy and accessibility because those are required by law in many regions. So that's the first piece. How do we create those, those positive outcomes by creating these ethically positive experiences? The second piece, avoiding harm. Right. So this is about how do we anticipate and mitigate potential harms that the experiences we create could cause for users? And that's not always harms that we would even intend to create as organizations, but also unintended consequences. How could bad actors use our product to do harm to individuals or even you know, entire societies in, in some cases? So that's responsible design in, in a nutshell. It is an approach to designing that most organizations aren't following today, so it requires some evolution of an organization's design process, but it's not extra work. It's about designing and working differently, and and I'm sure we'll go into some of the details of what that looks like today. So before we get into like what and how and the, the details, like I said, I want to pick up on positive outcomes don't cause harm. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't every organization want those things? They just seem like table stakes for good business. 
I think in theory, if you were to ask any executive, do you want those things? They they probably say yes. But then if you put a microscope to their design process and to their experiences, in practice, it's it's not always happening. And and there's a few challenges that I, I, I think are at, at play here that prevent that from happening. One is, you know, I mentioned a moment ago, there are regulations in place as it relates to things like privacy. We have GDPR, as it relates to accessibility, we have the web content accessibility guidelines. But when you look at a lot of ethical principles, there's not clear guidelines for what that you know, means in, in practice. And so I find that sometimes organizations are like, yeah, it makes sense. We need to create experiences that you know embody these principles of transparency, explainability, et cetera. But I'm not clear what that actually means in, in terms of specific decisions that I'm, I'm making when designing an experience. So the lack of, of regulations and clear guidelines is a barrier. There's also this perception that this is going to slow things down. A, a lot of what responsible design is about is asking more questions in the design process to anticipate what potential harms could be and, and address them. And organizations are trying to move really quickly right now, um, particularly as we're seeing such rapid advances in, in technologies like generative AI is a great example right now. Companies are under pressure to create their strategy and to release initial features quickly. And they're not necessarily wanting to take that step back and say, are we asking the right questions to ensure we're not going to be harming our users by deploying these technologies in, in this way? So lack of regulations, perception that this is going to add friction to the process. And then also there's sometimes this question of whose responsibility is this? Who is who is the person or the team in the organization that should be raising these red flags and saying, we're making a decision that could potentially lead to harm? Certain organizations have office of ethics or chief trust officers. You know, this is often where that sits. But I would say that's the rarity. It's it's not the norm. And most organizations kind of lack that common centralized function or common ethical framework by which they're making decisions in designing customer experiences. So I'm hearing that this isn't just a added responsibility for designers. This actually does require responsibility at the most senior levels. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, like with many things, um, to be successful with responsible design, it starts with the leadership of the organization actually making this a, a priority. So, you know, going back to your question from a moment ago, Martin, it's not just the leadership saying we need to practice responsible design because we want to create positive outcomes and, and avoid creating harm. We're actually going to hold ourselves accountable to doing that because we know the ethical principles that are important for us to adhere to as an organization because they align with our mission and our values and our commitments. And we are putting the appropriate governance and policies in place to ensure that we are enforcing those, that we are adhering to those, that we have checkpoints built in to make sure that we're not making decisions that violate those principles that we say are important to us as, as an organization. That top-down commitment, you know, that this is a priority and this is something we're holding all of us as an organization accountable to is, is a really important first step. So I can see how naively you can look at that. So clearly organizations know executives going out saying, let's cause harm and, and deliver negative outcomes. But I can see how you could look at what you've described and say, well, that's no, going to slow us down. It's going to be cumbersome. It's going to get in the way of things. It's business prevention rather than innovation. So in practice, what does this look like? How are, how are design teams embracing it and making it real? 
Yeah, there's a couple of aspects to this. So first, you know, if you just look at the overall kind of culture and, and how the organization works, and Angelina, I know you you think and, and have written a lot about culture in the past, there's some important steps that need to happen there. For example, we interviewed a large technology firm for this research where they were really trying to create a culture of ethics where every single employee understood, had the training and had the tools to consider ethical impacts in their day-to-day work. And, and they created safe spaces where they said, you employees, if you notice that we're making a decision that is in violation of ethical principle, raise the red flag, speak up, and and we will take that input seriously. That's one important piece of it. But then when you start to get into the tactics of, okay, what does that mean in our company's design process, something that, that CX pros are often you know, kind of leading or very concerned about, there are some new tools and activities that need to be incorporated. Let's take something like personas, for example. Most customer experience teams are probably using personas in some way, but there are some new tools. Um, Anti-personas is something that I came across in this research that I never heard of before. This is the idea that we need to have personas representing who we are designing for. That's, That's how most personas are structured. But we also need to have alignment on who we're not designing for because we know our products can create harm for that group. Classic example here is you're a company that sells alcoholic beverages. You don't want to be marketing your products to underage drinkers because we know they're tempted by your products. We know that they have specific kind of goals as it relates to their lives, you know, fitting in, things like that, that your products could help support. But we don't want to intentionally market to them like some of our competitors do. So one of the examples we feature in the research is an anti-persona of an underage shrinker that that sort of firm would use to check their decisions and make sure they're not inadvertently creating harm as it relates to that particular persona. So I love that. And I would encourage any organization to think about how they could extend their approach to personas to include things like anti-personas as well. And I'll give just one more example where we're on sort of the topic of common tools and frameworks CX pros use. Many organizations use a desirability, feasibility, viability, you know, kind of the Venn diagram we we all know and love framework when they're thinking about which we actually prioritize, right, in terms of new product features and things like that and to vet things through those lenses. But what most companies aren't thinking about, and and we suggest this should actually be a fourth circle on the Venn diagram, is impact. What's the end impact that this particular product or experience is, is going to have? And when doing this research, we came across some really detailed tools. I'm talking about, you know, Excel sheets with, you know, many columns and rows of here's particular impacts that we need to assess our our products against. You know, is this product promoting accessibility and inclusion or is it not? You know, questions related to personal dignity and agency, questions related to security and privacy. And I'm seeing CX teams start to test their decisions through this lens, you know, look at their products and say, where are we potentially creating negative impacts? And then also where are we creating ethically positive impacts as well and be able to tell that story. So that's another example of like taking a current framework, desirability, feasibility, viability, and expanding upon it to also look at impact, which is an important lens when we're talking about creating products that are you know designed responsibly. Some really interesting examples, and I love the the kind of anti-persona, which immediately kind of went to a place of like bad actors, people trying to abuse the product, but it's actually something different from that in the way you described it. Yes, yes, absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. I do want to pick up on something you said at the start, and I'm interested in, Angelina, your thoughts on this as well, because there's, there's a strong cultural component to what you described, giving employees the psychological safety, the cultural safety to actually put their hand up and say, whoa, 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 that's a bad decision. We shouldn't make that. That can be really hard in some organizations. And, and I guess it has to start with leadership. But what are your thoughts on like how you enable that? So I think there's a couple different ways. Number one, the organization has certain kind of checkpoints and and steps that need to be integrated into the process that welcomes that feedback. So for example, many organizations we spoke to in this research are creating kind of critique sessions where employees are encouraged to pose the difficult questions, right? One of my favorites was, hey team, have we thought about what's the worst possible headline that could result if we put this product into market? That can be really powerful, right? And it gives employees a chance and a framework to be able to voice those potential concerns that they might have, but were afraid to to speak up about. So I think that's one thing is like starting to build in some checkpoints, some rituals where you're proactively inviting that feedback from everyone who's involved in, in creating that product. That can be a really great place to start. And then we talked earlier about, you know, the executives of the organization needing to state their commitment to responsible design, but that obviously has to trickle down into all levels of management as well. And so it's critically important that leadership, that management is bought into and aligned to, you know, what is the organization's definition of responsible design? What are the ethical principles that we hold ourselves accountable to? And then trickle that down to their employees as as well. But I think also a lot of um, Forrester's research from some of my colleagues on the Future of Work team around how do you create an inclusive culture becomes really important and relevant here too, right? We want to make sure that employees feel like they can voice their concerns um, about things that they see happening at the organization. That feedback is welcomed. They have that psychological safety to know that they can do that. It does align with my observations that Process and policy will highly impact culture, and then culture in turn will support the process and the policy. So you really have to do these things concurrently, get support from the top, build out the policies to support the process, and then encourage the culture around responsible design. Have you seen, have you seen that work well? Absolutely. I mean, one of the the companies that we interviewed for and and wrote about in the reports we published for this research is Salesforce. Now, Salesforce is a bit unique in that they have an office of ethics. So clearly ethics is a priority for the company. Um, But one of the things they did that was really cool is they didn't just, you know, say from an executive level, these are the ethical principles that are important to us as a company. They came up with a straw man of that, but then they actually surveyed their employees and asked them, which of these principles are most important to you? Because they wanted to make sure that they were getting that pulse and that they were factoring that employee sentiment into ultimately the structure and the, the principles that they would hold themselves accountable to as a company. And, you know, they learned that for employees, like human rights was a, a top concern. And so you actually see that reflected as a, as a priority when you go read about their office of ethics. So I think that's really powerful in terms of just, you know, creating that culture where employees feel like their input is valued. And, you know, I would suspect employees at that company are are probably more likely to speak up and want to speak up because, you know, they feel like they sort of had some shared ownership in, in creating what the company's approach to ethics actually was. So it kind of strikes me then that a lot of the benefits from this could come from not screwing up, not making mistakes, not marketing to underage drinkers, whatever the thing is. 
how do you flip that on its head? How do you measure we're winning with being successful? What are the KPIs or the metrics that we should be looking at? So I think there's a, a couple ways that you can approach this. One is we've talked a lot so far about this notion of this is about designing towards specific ethical principles. And so I see companies creating metrics related to specific principles. Let's take something like transparency, right? You can imagine as a CX professional, if you are conducting satisfaction surveys, right? Say you're a bank and you're collecting feedback from people who've recently opened uh, new products with the bank asking questions about, did you understand you know, the terms of the particular product that you were opening with us? That would give you a really good indication of how transparent the company is being in terms of explaining that product on the website, on the account opening application, that sort of thing. As it relates to ethical principles like accessibility and inclusion, you know, I see firms actually tracking how many instances of non-inclusive language do we have on our site. They're using platforms to help them do that. Or how many accessibility violations do we have in place on our site? That's a very clear way of measuring if you're actually delivering on those principles in your experiences. So that's the first place you could start is like creating KPIs related to specific ethical principles. The second thing, and I talk about this more on the What It Means podcast that I hope everyone will listen to, is we have really been able to show how responsible design is a great strategy for building trust, with both your customers and with your employees. And I would encourage everyone to read Forrester's Trust Imperative Research, where we talk about the key levers that are important for organizations to focus on in order to build trust. And those levers include things like empathy. So you could also think about creating metrics around specific levers of trust and seeing how those you know, improve over time as you begin to implement a responsible design strategy. So I think there's different ways that you could think about it. Um, but absolutely, you know, like with anything, it's important to know going into this, what are we hoping to achieve as a result and how you're going to measure that. I think the, the communication one is particularly interesting. So little plug for our CX index research. One of the drivers that comes out consistently, particularly in banking insurance around a driver of loyalty for customers is communicates in plain language. So if you can actually kind of systemize how you think about communicating in plain language, we can show that that actually drives positive customer outcomes. 100%. That's such a great example. And I would say, you know, of all the, the ethical principles that I'm seeing organizations adopt, inclusion is a big one right now. Uh, you know, many companies have externally stated their commitment to inclusion. If you're not embodying that in your products and experiences, you're not really committed to inclusion. And, you know, using plain language is such a great place to start when we think about how that manifests in a digital experience. Tina, you have a bunch of very specific activities to help folks get started that they could really put on their calendars today to get into this. Do you want to offer a couple ideas for the audience? Absolutely. So as you think about what are things we can embed in our design practice tomorrow, um, there's some really great open source tools that can help here. So one example, they're called the Tarot Cards of Tech. They come from an organization called Artifact. And these are a set of cards that just have question prompts. One of my favorite examples, I referenced it earlier, is the scandal. What's the worst possible headline that could result from us releasing this product? There's also one that prompts you to consider impacts on certain marginalized groups, for example. So I would encourage people, you know, download those cards and you're probably doing design critique as part of your process today. 
create a specific design critique session where you're using that tool to begin to vet your designs through this lens as well. The second thing I would recommend is identify one high priority product or experience that your company is working on right now. If you're working on something that's largely kind of fueled by AI, that might be a really good place to, to start. And set up a session where you begin to apply those cards to that particular product. And that's going to give you a really good sense and, and really, more importantly, start an internal dialogue around what potential impacts this product could result in that maybe we, we haven't considered so far. So that's probably where I would start is, is integrating a practice in your process related to you know, asking more questions and then focusing on one high priority journey and beginning to assess the impact of that. So that kind of important fourth dimension that we talked about earlier today. So that has been a uh, run through a big, big, big complex topic. Gina, people can find you online at forrester.com if they want to talk to you. Absolutely. Yes. Or on LinkedIn. Find you on LinkedIn, find you on tag Gina on LinkedIn, or if you're a Forrester client, book a guidance session, come talk to Gina, read the report. Just remains to say thank you, Angelina. Thank you, producer Ellie. And thank you, Gina. Thank you, Gina. Thank you for having me. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at forester.com. As always, you can find us at forester.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time for more CX Insights.